0: This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. We're starting today's podcast with a little bit of a case. Your patient is a 63-year-old female who presents with some abdominal pain, decreased bowel movements, nausea, three episodes of vomiting, and some pretty significant abdominal distension. She has a history of several prior abdominal surgeries, including appendectomy and a cholecystectomy. She's unfortunately been unable to keep any food down at home. This hasn't happened before, and she denies any fevers. On exam, her vital signs are normal, except for a heart rate of 107. The rest of your exam reveals a patient who looks uncomfortable with some significant abdominal distension. Her abdomen is diffusely tender, but, there's no peritoneal findings. This is a case of small bowel obstruction, and that's what we're going to focus on for today's podcast. A small bowel obstruction is due to obstruction of the intestines and failure to pass contents through the intestinal cavity. There are several different ways we can categorize a small bowel obstruction. One of the most common is mechanical versus functional. In a mechanical obstruction, there's some form of physical barrier that prevents passage through the intestines. In developed countries, this is most commonly due to adhesions from a prior abdominal surgery. You also need to consider malignancy, inflammatory disease, hernia, obstruction, infection, and some form of foreign body. There are several types of mechanical obstructions. There's a simple obstruction, which occurs at one point, but there's also a closed-loop obstruction, which occurs at two points. This is a very dangerous obstruction because it occurs at two points, and this can cause a rapid increase in intraluminal pressures. This may lead to venous and arterial compromise. The second type is a functional small bowel obstruction. This is a disruption of the normal peristalsis with no true mechanical obstruction. These include things like postoperative states, hypokalemia, and medications. While mechanical versus functional is probably the most common, another way to think about this is a simple versus a complicated obstruction. A complicated obstruction really needs the OR. These patients may have a closed-loop obstruction on your imaging, they may have a lactate elevation, they might be hemodynamically unstable, or they might be peritoneal. Let's look a little bit at the pathophysiology and why small bowel obstruction can cause so many problems. The obstruction causes dilation of the proximal bowel and accumulation of intestinal contents. This stimulates peristalsis, which results in bowel emptying past the point of obstruction and some nausea and vomiting bowel wall edema decreases further absorption, which causes further dilation, and it decreases venous return. This can lead to decreased arterial flow. Another issue with that stasis is that bacterial overgrowth can occur. With increased permeability of the bowel wall, this can lead to translocation of bacteria and even bacteremia. A final issue is the volume loss and dehydration along with the electrolyte changes that can occur due to the transdata fluid movement into the bowel lumen as well as the vomiting. What about our physical exam? Are there any reliable signs or symptoms that can really help us lead to a diagnosis of SBO? Well, your classic clinical picture of a small bowel obstruction is a patient with abdominal pain, distension, nausea and vomiting, and probably PO intolerance. The problem with this is that early on in the disease, the presentation is really nonspecific. Patients can pass stool and gas and even have diarrhea. These symptoms should not be used to exclude an SBO. Other factors like nausea, prior episodes of similar pain, and severity and duration of pain don't increase the pretest probability of SBO. There are several elements in the history that can increase the likelihood of SBO. These are prior abdominal surgery, which has a positive likelihood ratio of over 3.8, and a history of constipation, which has a positive likelihood ratio of over eight. On your exam, the findings most suggestive of an SBO are abdominal distension with a positive likelihood ratio that ranges anywhere between 5.6 to over 16, and abnormal bowel sounds, which has a positive likelihood ratio of over 6. The problem with abnormal bowel sounds is that interobserver observer agreement is poor, and again, they shouldn't be used to exclude an SBO. Also be sure to evaluate for a hernia, because this is the second most common cause of SBO after intra-abdominal adhesions. Keep in mind, though, that the most important part of your exam is to look carefully for hemodynamic instability, fever, and peritonitis. These can occur in later stages of SBO and suggest complications like intestinal strangulation or perforation. Any pain that's persistent or out of proportion to exam is also concerning for strangulation and perforation. There are several labs that can help us, but they really shouldn't be used to exclude a diagnosis of SBO a CBC, liver function tests, renal function, lipase, and lactate are recommended. Lactate can be elevated in the setting of bowel ischemia, but this is late in the disease course. If you have a significantly elevated wet blood cell count, this might mean the patient has an abscess, ischemia, or peritonitis. An elevated BUN to creatinine ratio also suggests volume depletion. All right, so let's get to our imaging. There are a lot of options we have here, Plain radiographs used to be a major part of the diagnosis. They are available at most centers and can be used to follow disease progression. There are several findings on plain radiographs that suggest SBO. These include things like dilated loops proximal to the site of obstruction, predominantly centrally dilated loops of bowel, and horizontal or oblique air-fluid levels in the abdomen. But the problem is is that these X-rays can't be used to exclude SBO, and they just aren't reliable. Sensitivity ranges from 50 to over 80%, and they're completely normal in 20 to 30% of cases. What else do we have? Another test that you can use is a bedside ultrasound. This is a rapid and reliable test for SBO, and it's really easy to learn. Sensitivity of ultrasound for diagnosis is over 94%, with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.04. Specificity ranges from 81 to 100% with a positive likelihood ratio of over nine for ED point of care ultrasound. The best thing about ultrasound is that you can incorporate it into your bedside exam, expedite the care, and reduce patient length of stay. If you have an SBO present on your ultrasound, further testing might be unnecessary, especially if you don't have access to advanced imaging like a CT. To look for SBO with ultrasound, you're going to want to use a curvilinear probe with sequential graded compression. Beginning in the lower right quadrant, you then move the probe longitudinally back and forth, evaluating for dilated and collapsed loops of bowel. Ultrasound might reveal things like fluid-filled loops of bowel greater than 2.5 centimeters in the jejunum or greater than 1.5 centimeters in the ileum. You might also see ineffective peristalsis with whirling movements and collapsed colonic lumen distal to a transition point. Free fluid, mural gas, and bowel wall edema are all bad signs. These are associated with ischemia and worse prognosis. The gold standard imaging test is going to be a CT with IV contrast. This is your imaging modality of choice, and it's diagnostic with dilated small intestine proximal to a transition point with distally collapsed bowel. It's very accurate, it can look for complications, and it can determine the location of the transition point. Current generation CT with IV contrast has a sensitivity over 93% for diagnosis of SBO and it has a specificity of over 96%. What about PO contrast? When it comes to CT, PO contrast is not recommended. This limits your evaluation for ischemia, and it doesn't improve the diagnostic accuracy of CT. In pediatric patients and pregnant patients, you can also consider MRI, but many centers won't have access to an MRI. Once we have the diagnosis, what's our management? Management focuses on several different components. The first step is to look for complications like strangulation, ischemia, or peritoneal findings. Second, manage the patient's symptoms, and in all patients, consult your surgeon. Make sure to keep the patient NPO because oral intake increases proximal intestinal content and intraluminal pressures. With that introduction, let's look at this step by step. Your first step is to look at the patient, patients who are hemodynamically unstable, febrile or peritoneal need the OR. These suggest a complication like perforation or strangulation. These patients really don't need imaging, especially if you have a history and exam suggesting SBO. If you've obtained a CT and there's ischemia on the CT, a closed-loop SBO, or internal hernia, these patients also need the OR. Also, if the patient is septic or toxic appearing, give them broad-spectrum antibiotics. In other patients who otherwise appear well and are not toxic or septic appearing, you can hold on the antibiotics. These are not routinely recommended for all patients with SBO. Also be sure to provide some intravenous fluid resuscitation because of their third spacing and their volume loss, and also give the patient antiemetics and analgesia for symptom control. What about the classic NG tube? NG tubes were previously considered an important part of our management, but routine placement for all patients is no longer recommended. NG tubes are not associated with reduction in bowel ischemia, need for the OR, complication rates, or even length of stay. There are some who might benefit from decompression, like those with severe abdominal distension, severe pain, and vomiting, but again, evidence is really limited to support this recommendation. You can also consider placing an NG in patients who require transport for further management of their SVO. I had mentioned surgical consultation. This is very important. Patients who have clinical deterioration, peritonitis, or bowel ischemia or infarction require surgical exploration. Other patients need to be admitted for serial exams and symptom management. Literature suggests that admission to a surgical service compared to a medical service is associated with reduced length of stay and even mortality. Now, there are a lot of issues with these studies, they were observational, and there are many confounders. Just keep this in mind when you're speaking with your surgeon. Finally, patients with closed-loop obstruction or bowel ischemia and infarction really need the ICU. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.